You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 24. Today we're talking with Heiner Fruhauf about Goo Syndrome. This is part one of a two-part episode. Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. And I'm Fee Gitchum. Today our guest is Dr. Heiner Fruhauf. Hi Heiner. Hello. Hi, thanks for joining us today. Dr. Heiner Fruhauf is the founding professor of the School of Classical Chinese Medicine at the National College of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon. He's lectured on three continents for more than 30 years and authored a broad variety of articles and textbooks on Chinese medicine. His interest in preserving some of the traditional features of Oriental medicine led him to develop a database dedicated to the archiving of classical knowledge, where a selection of his publications can be accessed at classicalchinesemedicine.org. Out of concern over the rapidly declining quality of medicinals from mainland China, he has founded the company Classical Pearls, specialising in the import of wild-crafted and sustainably grown Chinese herbs. You can find the website at classicalpearls.org. He also has an active clinical practice in the Columbia River Gorge area, specialising in the treatment and prevention of chronic, difficult and recalcitrant diseases with Chinese herbs. The Heavenly Tea Podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlyteapodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Tea Podcast to your favourite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hi there, Heiner. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Heavenly Tea Podcast. Thank you so very much. Um, so let's jump straight in. We're talking about goo syndrome, also sometimes called possession syndrome. And we're going to be talking about why an ancient concept like goo syndrome is becoming so relevant again in the modern practice of Chinese medicine. Are there things you'd like to start with about that, Heiner? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, maybe a few words about why it's fallen out of relevance, because we, of course, uh, work in a profession where everything has been relevant for the last 2,000 years and has lost very little of its relevance. But I remember when I first read about Goo Syndrome, uh, which is, of course, uh, how to treat uh, systemic parasites that lead to a decay of the body and the mind, uh, at the same time, um, in in a book uh, by Sun Samyao in in the 1980s, the, the the front cover of the book, or right inside the front cover, it said, "Read this book with caution because lots of uh, feudalist and superstitious concepts are being mentioned in here." With goose syndrome, of course, being uh, one of the prime culprits. So uh, the the uh, Goo syndrome, uh, I'm glad to hear that it's becoming a, a concept again in Chinese medicine because I find it is more important than ever. But for about 50 or 60 years since the uh, advent of the People's Republic of China and a sort of standardized version of Chinese medicine, um, Chinese medicine has been purged of these uh, somewhat uh, concepts that seem too spiritual or too energetic 
not materialistic enough, uh, not, uh, not fitting the Marxist materialist mold enough. And of course, you know, uh, in this case, we're talking about an herbal exorcism, basically, that was too far away from what was comfortable to the communist censors. And so this has been completely purged from the record of uh, um, herbal and acupuncture teachings in Chinese medicine. It survived a little bit in the so-called ghost points in acupuncture, which are uh, really there to treat uh, goo syndrome by moxibusting these points to drive out uh, these quote-unquote demons uh, that decay body, mind, and spirit. Um, so one reason why it hasn't been relative for a while is because of these political and historical reasons. And uh, But we are living in a time now where not only Chinese medicine is advancing in the West, where there is no uh, need to standardize the heck out of the um, system of Chinese medicine. And at the same time, we live at a time when, A, there's global warming. So a lot of these insects that transmit Lyme disease, that transmit Bartonella, Babesia, Malaria, Rickettsia, Ehrlichiosis, West Nile virus, Zika virus, Epstein-Barr, all of those um, things that are uh, being uh, passed on, not only through uh, blood contact between people, but possibly through insects, uh, not just mosquitoes, but fleas and ticks, etc. Uh, they are advancing uh, quite uh, significantly. Like I live in the state of Oregon that is most beautiful in the summertime because it is nice and warm with blue skies, but you don't have that, you don't need air conditioning and you don't need screens on your windows because there so far have been no mosquitoes until about two years ago. Now we have mosquitoes in the summertime just because there has been a movement with more tropical pathogens moving north. I've uh, last year been seeing a patient from Hawaii has been afflicted with a bizarre disease called the rat lungworm disease, which is originally coming from Thailand and southern China and then went to Fiji and on to Hawaii. Now it's also in Florida here in the U.S. So that is a severe protozoan infection uh, where you can literally, if you take an MRI of that kind of patient, it's transmitted by snails that crawl over rat feces and then crawl over your salad. And if you eat that salad and hasn't been properly washed, you you get this organism and it lives in your nervous system. You can literally see uh, worm tracks in your brain and people have seizures going to a coma and can die from that. So these tropical diseases that were familiar to Africa, to South America, to Southeast Asia, that uh, were completely uh, not acknowledged by Western uh, emergency room doctors and when you go to medical school, you don't learn about these things. Um, all of a sudden, it's a reality in the northern hemisphere that these things are coming. And at the same time, we have uh, a lot of these uh, creatures um, become inside the body, become antibiotic resistant, 
outside of the body in the form of mosquitoes, etc., are resistant to pesticides. So there is uh, more than ever after a hundred years of celebrating, we've you know on top of tuberculosis, we on top of the plague, we on top of leprosy. Uh, not only are these diseases now coming back, but we have all of this new stuff like Zika virus and and Ebola and, and those kinds of diseases coming. And either no Western drug has been developed for those or, you know, particularly for spirochetes and viruses, that's a weak point of Western medicine. But even the more bacterial uh, pathogens are resistant to uh, some of the drugs that are out there. So this is the strength of Chinese medicine is this, um, uh, you know, Chinese medicine was developed in basically inside of a jungle where we have like, a, you know, China used to be ravaged by dengue fever, yellow fever, malaria. So this is sort of the basis, you know, Gu syndrome means you have multiple of these pathogens on top of each other. And there is tremendous, uh, a lot of these remedies can be successful for that when Western medicine fails to offer anything. And last but not least, um, the modern Western, or I should possibly say the modern urban uh, city dweller, this is true for anybody around the world, not just in the West, is because of lifestyle, because of pollution, because of not enough sleep, because of being exposed to wireless radiation all the time, not enough exercise, taking, being exposed to pharmaceuticals, if not taking them directly, then in the groundwater, we have developed a deficiency. That is part of Gu syndrome is that, you know, some people get infected when they get bitten by a tick uh, that is infected and others don't because their immune system fights it off. So part of so-called Gu syndrome is the infection with an external quote-unquote wind pathogen that then proceeds to ravage our body, but it can only, and this is the second part, the prerequisite, uh, enter into the system and really do serious damage if the system is deficient and therefore over-challenged and then has a tendency to overreact. So uh, as a result of it, I believe that Goose syndrome is a, or this approach, which is not just you know, it, which is really outside of the regular five element system because it is more complex and it's very important for us as herbalists to know that, yes, you use the Shanghai Lun, which is my Bible and other herbal classics, they give you a key to treating most diseases, but some patients in this case, definitely, uh, they are outside Taiyang, uh, uh, Taiyin, etc., or liver qi stagnation or spleen qi deficiency, that kind of five or six system based diagnosis. And Gu syndrome diagnosis basically means this is a complex disease and you need to address it as Gu syndrome, which is multiple of these things on top of each other, Shaoyin and Taiyin and Juyin and then some. And it has its own treatment parameters. And uh, in my clinic, um, as you mentioned earlier, I mostly see people who are chronically sick, where regular 
medicine cannot uh, help very often. Um, the the um, you know I I would say that almost fifty percent of my patients are have some form or being treated at some stage of uh, what I would diagnose as Gu syndrome. So I find it extremely relevant in the modern world. And uh, it is an opportunity for us as Chinese medicine practitioners to embrace that rather than saying, I didn't learn about this in school, and uh, this is some mumbo jumbo. Mm, I think that's um, definitely really relevant and something that we see, especially in difficult cases where you, you know, you're going to miss something if you don't ask the question, Did have you traveled, have you had tick bites, have you been, did you have a particularly nasty cold or flu that might not have been just a cold or flu uh, in even 10 years ago, you know, especially with things like Epstein-Barr or something like Lyme's and the progression of this. Um, it takes a certain kind of sleuthing to figure out what's what's happened there. Um, and I noticed that you didn't discuss so much the digestive parasites, um, but are you finding also that that's a, a large aspect of, of goo? Absolutely. Um, when I first researched this, it was because I saw a host of patients that wouldn't that had chronic digestive issues, like bloating and extreme food allergies and abdominal pain and nausea and alternating constipation, diarrhea, and it was very often um, post-Peace Corps or um, extensive uh, third world travel, etc. And I used my regular knowledge of pulse diagnosis and would prescribe things like ban xia xie xing dang, etc. And there was improvement for about two or three days, but then it just went uh, back to where it was, and then I finally made a research project out of that and hit the books and found this uh, goo syndrome. So it started with, and so the original goo is what I later termed digestive goo, which is basically from a modern perspective would be a combination of worms, flukes, and protozoan parasites like Giardia, Entamoeba, histolytica, Blastocystis harmonis, those kinds of things. And um, that uh, particularly when people take a lot of antibiotics and then think they're cured, but then their health is never quite the same. But I find that in recent years that what I've later termed a brain goo, which means neurological goo, primarily viruses and especially spirochetes that ravage the nervous system, uh, live in the brain and the, uh, in the, the, the spinal fluid, that they uh, have an even more torturous effect on the body and uh, are often even harder to diagnose because it's not, you know, at the very least with the digestive goo sometimes, and uh, the sometimes means about one in a hundred, so people think, oh, I diagnose goo syndrome by doing a stool test, and if I find entamoeba, you have goo syndrome, it's not quite like that. You know, it means, you know, you need to have a deficiency, you need to have a certain amount of autoimmune responses, and you need to have multiple things on top of each other, and unfortunately, Goo syndrome is yin syndrome, which means it's like black magic 
it was first described in the first ancient text that I found in 500 BC or so, which is, uh, it's like somebody put a hex on you and you, it, the attacker is in the dark and you suffer terribly, but nobody knows what's going on. Uh, yet here you are suffering and maybe even dying. And uh, so I find that one of the features of Gu syndrome uh, that makes it so hard to recognize is that from a Western medicine a diagnostic perspective, there is nothing, oh, we don't see anything in your, in your bowel movement. We don't see any, there's maybe your white cells are slightly elevated. Seems like maybe there's something, uh, there's a chronic infection, but we can't figure out what it is. But overall, you look great. You know, and so this is what drives a lot of people crazy, that they know there is something wrong with them, but you're unable to put your finger on it. And so uh, it's, it's, as one Venezuelan uh, parasitologist pointed out, he said, my estimate is in a stool test, and you, you're able to have one in a hundred of these parasites will be coming out positive with existing lab tests. So that is why I proceeded in various publications to point out for us as Chinese medicine practitioners, how do we recognize when somebody has Gu syndrome? Um, we can't wait for Western medicine to give us some, if this and this and that is positive, then this is Gu, but we need to go with uh, uh, multiple symptoms. And like you mentioned some already, some of it is simply the history. Did you travel? Did you ever have malaria? Did you ever get Lyme disease? Did you ever have this really bad flu that could have been something more severe like West Nile virus or so, or even encephalitis that wasn't diagnosed at the time, etc. But then there are a number of other things. And this is what makes our medicine strong, that it was always a medicine in its own right. There was no Western medicine there. And now that it is there, we can, of course, um, use it as a reference, but uh, we should not be slavishly beholden to, oh, you need to be pre-diagnosed by a Western medicine doctor. If, you, if your Lyme panel comes back positive, then I treat you as having brain goo syndrome. Then, you know, lots of patients you wouldn't be able to treat that really need this kind of uh, help. So what you're saying is that um, you've got some patients who've been off and had stool testing done and hopefully it's been done by a lab that specialises in um, testing for these types of parasites because I know that, uh, well, certainly in Australia, a lot of the conventional labs and the mainstream labs don't have the experience or the technology to be able to detect most parasites. Um, but there are specialist labs that just specifically do what they call kind of functional medicine, stool testing. Um, so if, if you have a patient, they come to see you and they're like, I've been sick for a long time and I've got these symptoms. It, so what you're saying is if they have on a stool test, they've got, you know, something has come up, they've got Klebsiella or they've got Diantamoeba fragilis or, you know, something like that in their, that's shown up in their stool test, that doesn't necessarily on its own satisfy your criteria for a diagnosis of Gu syndrome? You're absolutely correct. So there is two different scenarios. If somebody comes up with a positive stool test where they have 
I don't know, 3 plus candida, and then they have Klebsiella, and then they have some Giardia, but then they don't have major symptoms, I wouldn't consider that goose syndrome because mm. they do not fulfill the major prerequisite, which is deficiency and being hollowed out by this uh, black magic pathogen that is like a de ravaging you like a demon and literally driving you crazy mm. um, because your immune system is still strong enough it'll is holding it at bay you should probably still do something to try and get rid of these things but then once again our bodies and ecosystem that is very much like a forest there's no forest where there are no beetles and and uh, insects live live in so as long as our positive our probiotic bacteria, etc., is in good balance and we are not suffering major symptoms, there is no need to be necessarily alarmed by that. Uh, and then secondarily, there is the more common scenario, somebody has terrible symptoms, where you go like, oh, this is, looks just like goose syndrome, but then you send them off to have a stool test and it comes back negative or somebody's terrible uh, spinal pain and, and headaches and you think you know maybe they are they chronically fatigued and joints ache and you go like this sounds just like Lyme disease but the Lyme panel comes back negative this then doesn't mean that they do not have goose syndrome and that's why you need to go then with your parameters of your own science which is if you have this symptom and this symptom and this symptom and this symptom yes you have goose syndrome rather than looking at, at, at the lab tests because the lab tests are imperfect in different ways. Number one, some of these creatures are very small um, and uh, we don't have the equipment yet to uh, detect those properly, particularly true for spirochetes. Number two, there is constantly new pathogens showing up that takes Western medicine to figure out what, oh, all of a sudden there is this Ebola and all of a sudden there is a Zika virus that nobody's ever heard about before. That takes specialty parasitologists to figure that out. No normal blood test would be able to see that. And then most importantly is a human uh, error or let's call it human, uh, you know, we can't really call it incompetence. It's just not part of the training when somebody looks at your blood uh, in a lab or somebody looks at your stool in a lab, they're, it, they are looking for particular shapes and things. And if you haven't been trained to identify the multiple egg and larvae stages of particular parasites, you'll look at the same sample and you simply won't see and will diagnose it as being negative. So I have some... Uh, patients who want, you know, because they want to show their spouse or their parent, I really do have parasites, I need this on black and white, uh, then I say sure, and I send them to an African physician who practices out of New York City who is able to recognize leg, egg, and larvae stages, and in a lot of these cases that were negative, in his lab they show up um, um, positive. So uh, those are the reasons um, why I think for, it's important to have sort of a list of symptoms uh, and uh, do this sleuthing uh, in our own, using our own parameters to diagnose goose syndrome. 
And I think that's that's a really great point is that, you know, sometimes the, the patients, it, it can be a really motivating factor if not for them but for, you know, getting their family members or their spouse on board um, to have a test that says you've got something um, and you've got, you've got something that then you can you can retest later on and see if there's some improvement to verify that they are feeling better when they're starting to feel better. But yeah, that's it's the trick is trying to find the lab and trying to find the technicians who've got the interest and the skill um, and the knowledge to be able to find to find them. Yes, absolutely. And uh, because if your nervous system is compromise, then you don't just have digestive symptoms like the ones I mentioned with the blow, bloating, the nausea, and the uh, irregular bowel movements, but you have all of a sudden you have neuropathy, you have palpitations, you have tremors, you have what people even describe as micro-seizures, you have electrical shooting sensations, you have, you have difficulty forming words or thinking of the right words, you have tinnitus, you have photosensitivity, and uh, possibly uh, skin rashes that erratically break out and the dermatologist says there's nothing wrong with you, the uh, ear, ear, nose and throat person says there's nothing wrong with your eyes and your ears and MRI was clear, you know, then people, they say, you know, just take a Valium and you'll be, you know, you adjust a little bit, uh, you know, this is sort of, dep you're depressed or have anxiety and then it becomes stressful because the relatives will also think of that patient as being sort of semi-crazy and, uh, you know, pretending to be ill when they not really are. And that is the worst thing for a patient. They're already feeling terrible. And yes, it definitely helps to have something in black and white. And But at the same time, it also helps simply, and this is what I've tried to do with and that's why I do so much writing and interviewing and also doing this podcast with you guys is to um, empower people who are in uh, experiencing this kind of suffering that they feel recognized and that there's a reason for that. Even if the Western test comes back negative, they're, 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 they are not imagining that, including mental, emotional things like suicidal depression, terrible anxiety that they've never had before, extreme mood swings, that's where the possession uh, uh, label comes from, is that you, know, you literally feel possessed by another entity because all of a sudden you, this anger comes out and you don't even recognize yourself anymore. Those are all, you know, you don't need to have the whole list, but you have like two or three or four of those things that is enough to diagnose goose syndrome. And, uh, yeah. I can definitely understand the, the black magic framing as well of this. Um, when, you know, when you've seen patients that have this or even known people in society or in communities that have this and there definitely appears to be some kind of cloud around them and I think a lot of people, you know, would often try and give them advice like, you know, it's just all in your mind and your attitude and you need to be more positive and <laughs> like this, I think 
these may be relevant, but there seems to be this kind of stuck, dark cloud around these people with this really ongoing um, goose syndrome symptoms and the types of chronic fatigue and um, changes of, of Shen that go on. Absolutely, and also something that uh, should be added to this list is the uh, sequela that comes from A deficiency, then B, some kind of virulent host a virulent pathogen that enters into the body like a wind uh, and then causes the deficient body to overreact. So not only are you inflamed and you're hurting from that, but you are now developing sometimes uh, not so serious, but in some cases severe autoimmune disorders where then labels are being placed upon that, like you have rheumatoid arthritis, you have uh, scleroderma, you have um, Parkinson's, you have MS, uh, you have even more severe disorders like leukemia and clotting or, clotting or bleeding disorders. Uh, I've seen people that particularly the spirochetal type of pathogens can trigger the deficient body into overreacting in severe and life-threatening ways that then get diagnosed with some autoimmune label, but really what they have is goose syndrome with these autoimmune uh, complications. And I would almost go as far to say, and you can see that when we talk about actual herbs, is uh, that one of the categories of herbs that are being used here is these uh, so-called yin tonic herbs that are at the same time, some of them are anti-parasitic. Um, that, but that they are specifically keeping the body's over, autoimmune or uh, we could say overreactions in check. And so even just from the perspective of autoimmune disease, uh, it is very worthwhile as a Chinese uh, medicine practitioner to look at this concept and uh, the treatment options that Hu syndrome offers us. I think it's a, um, it's a really... Um, I just wanted to come back to your comment on an example of a yin tonic herb that has an antiparasitic effect. I think there's a lot that's been written on the internet about, you know, how to treat parasites and how to treat, um, you know, lots of these different types of infections that people are having. But um, and it's a real trap for Chinese medicine practitioners. There's not a lot written about it and not a lot spoken about in in schools and so practitioners are, are going for blends of um, Western herbs and naturopathic herbs and naturopathic supplements not necessarily knowing the strength of our own medicine. Absolutely because this is definitely uh, what happens, you described that well, is that the quote-unquote possessed uh, patient uh, becomes obsessed in the in the day and age of the internet and you start uh, either if you've, if you've been diagnosed with a parasite and can't find help or you're suffering and uh, are, people are unable to, from a Western perspective, diagnose you properly, then you try and uh, solve the puzzle yourself and you start browsing around, particularly since lots of these people uh, are too sick to work now. And then they come across these 
articles and solutions, mostly um, Western herbs uh, that are anti-parasitic. And those things are basically uh, similar to uh, like golden seal and um, organ grape and honeysuckle. Those are all substances that show up in the Chinese material medica too, but this is uh, out of uh, you know six different classifications uh, or categories of herbs that you should put together in an anti group formula. This is maybe number four or five uh, that are here used in single form uh, as a number one remedy. And that will fail for two different reasons, because these herbs, from a Chinese medicine perspective, are in 95% of cases are cold, energetically cold. So it's almost like you're taking the equivalent of an uh, antibiotic that will further deplete an already cold and deficient patient, number one. And um, number two, the parasites are not like heavy metals that you can chelate out and they just sit there and wait for you to hit them, but they're <laughs> alive and flexible and will adapt. So if you hit them with just one herb, they will just like, you know, even uh, flies and mosquitoes are able to adjust to Roundup. Uh, it, the ancient Chinese knew that number one, if you have a complex formula with like 10 or 15 different herbs in it, there is a much more broader spectrum that the parasite has a harder time to uh, adapt to, number one, and two, you're always a step ahead of the parasite, meaning you, in four or six week intervals, you give the patient a new remedy before the parasite has adapted to it. And so that is pretty much the Chinese strategy of the uh, Gu therapy is you you alternate, you change, you mix herbs alchemically, not only multiple herbs, but um, you mix them together according to ancient principles where you know these herbs, they not only don't bother each other, but they potentize each other. And most importantly, and this is the weakest point of Western herbalism and the Western, uh, the modern, let's just call it the modern herbalist mindset because we are inadvertently uh, all, even in Chinese medicine, often um, imitating strategies of Western medicine is that we try to imitate steroids, try to imitate painkillers, try to imitate uh, cooling uh, substances such as antibiotics and then hit hard with herbs, with herbs that clear heat and resolve toxicity, uh, and very often used in anti-cancer and anti-febrile disease and anything infectious immediately we think about banlangen, isatis root and guanlian coptis and herbs like that when really the main problem here with Gu syndrome is the deficient constitution of the patient and so you yes you want to use herbs like honeysuckle, jinyuhua and yanxiao for syphia and uh, uh, most likely, yes, but you also want to have warming herbs uh, and tonic herbs like uh, like 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 Sao or like Dangui, like Chuanxiong, like Fuzi, like Aconite, even. And uh, that is the strong suit of Chinese medicine that you give the, that not like an antibiotic. You 
because you know the so-called Hulda Clark approach is like that. She wrote all disease. Uh, what was it? The way that the way to treat all diseases or so was basically all cancer and other stuff comes from parasites. And while I think this is going a little bit too far, I think she recognized. Uh, the importance of parasitic disease in modern times and that particularly lots of strange chronic diseases that are hard to diagnose of the kind of fibromyalgia chronic fatigue syndrome type most often come from parasites but you can't just go in there with cloves and black walnut and and uh, turkey rhubarb and kind of cool and purge the heck out of the patients. <laughs> and then you, the patient feels better for two or three days and then all of a sudden they're done. And this kind of patient you need to build up and treat and systemically, uh, systematically fumigate them for mm -hmm. about three to five years. And so they need to be able to stomach your formulation and that's the beauty of this anti-goo approach is while there are some purgative remedies where you take arsenic or lead or something highly, you know, quasi-chemotherapeutic where you do a big purge and then you kill the tapeworm or so, that's one way you find those kind of remedies. But the ones that I've emphasized in my writing and my research and my teaching as, uh, and also in my uh, formula pre preparations then later to make these kind of approaches uh, available to a bigger range of practitioners that are not so uh, uh, familiar with herbs is, is this, um, you know, to use tonics uh, that are anti-parasitic at the same time and so you achieve great alchemical stability. It's the formula is not too hot, not too cold, not too dispersing. Uh, and not to internal uh, either and uh, as a result of it you can take it over long periods of time and it not doesn't just kill 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 it builds you up in the process because you want to eventually be free from even if you feel better with the herbs well eventually you should be able to have your life back and not constantly be on uh figuratively speaking, uh, constant intravenous herbal drip there. But at a certain point, you want to hand off the baton to the immune system and say, you're strong enough now to take care of your residual yeast and protozoans or whatever might still be there without the system going into collapse. I, th I think that's a really good point that you make about, you know, that sometimes these patients need to be, you know, their recovery process can be in measured in years, um, I remember hearing a um, and also related to a point you were saying earlier. I was speaking to uh, I heard a um, a doctor speak at a conference, and he specialises in the treatment of chronic fatigue syndrome in young people, and he sees a lot of um, people with you know parasites and Lyme disease and um, and so forth. And he he commented that. Um, the way in which a lot of these parasites are tested for um, and the way in which they're, they're detected, that sometimes a patient will not show positive on a test until their immune system is strong enough to have mounted a reaction or to have ex, you know, allowed some of the parasites to have been released in the stool um, and that he has patients who will test positive 
you know, six or 12 months or 18 months into treatment, once their system has regained, kind of gained enough strength. And I think it's, um, it's interesting that, you know, it is important to, um, to address that underlying deficiency um, because it's so common in all, of, in all of the patients that they, you know, they're too weak to mount a proper response against these, um, these you know... Invaders. Invaders, exactly. This is an extremely important point because uh, I, I couldn't agree more with this assessment because this is exactly what we observe at our clinic here as well, is that sometimes people, they call back and they say, this is worse now. Last time I didn't have, everything was negative and all of a sudden there's protozoans or detectable in my stool or all of a sudden I test positive for Lyme as if it was possible that herbs could give you Lyme disease. Of course not. But that in a certain way, and this is kind of a very interesting thing, is that you testing positive for something is similar to your body mustering up a strong enough immune response that you get a fever. And so this kind of fever is an expression uh, of your body trying to expel something. And if your body is so, if these creatures are burrowed in so deeply into your cellular matrix there, that basically your body has given up and it's not doing much, then nothing might be showing up, no antibodies, no and nothing in the stool, but all of a sudden your immune system starts coming up online and you start to expel things and manifest, express things uh, at the surface, and that's a good thing. I even had some people who, uh, let's say they come in and they say, I have Lyme disease, and it's either pre-confirmed by somebody, and then, but nothing had been working for them, and then all, but they never, they said, I, I don't remember being bitten by a tick, and now we start treating, and all of a sudden they call me and say, I'm, I've developed a bullseye rash now, you know, so 20 years after the initial event, when their body was too deficient to react, all of a sudden their body is reacting like it should have 20 years ago. And in uh, uh, homeopathy, that is called Herring's Law, like you are going through the different layers of disease backwards. And in Chinese medicine, I found one of the precursors, the Sung Dynasty precursors to the so-called fever school in Chinese medicine, who called that rowing the boat against the stream. So that is something that we need to learn as modern practitioners we are not in the business like Western medicine that we want to suppress symptoms and measure our success rate on how successful we are with that. But sometimes when we treat particularly these virulent pathogens is they, the body comes online and is trying to fight now and that is a good thing, not a bad thing and it will pass. Uh, and. Uh, it's not like now, oh, now I need to take antibiotics, but just let the body express itself, keep taking your herbs, good things are happening. Uh, and this is a very important thing uh, that I do with my long-term goo patients is that uh, you need to be in the trenches with them because it's easy sometimes to give them a, uh, one of these brilliantly designed 
anti-Gug remedies like Jiajie and Suhetang from the Qing dynasty. There were literally entire books written about the Gu syndrome at that time. And then reporting back to you, oh, first time in 15 years something is working, but then uh, all of a sudden it either stops working or they're getting divorced or the moon is full or it's a particularly hot or cold year or they had a bad flu or they get reinfected by a tick or uh, or simply the immune system is um, becoming stronger and all of a sudden they have more symptoms that often can be, you know, or the pathogen is trying to manipulate you into um, not taking the remedy and is secreting substances uh, literally into your system that make you suffer and so that you want to stop taking the remedy. And so education is part of the remedy. And you can't just give people herbs and say, I see you in three years, just keep taking that. But you need to adjust that remedy and you need to be prepared that even if the patient is riding high in the beginning and says, thank you so much, you my savior, you, you know that down the road there will come the point when they are totally distressed and will say, I'm back to square one, etc. And you know that that's just not business as usual. You never hope for that, but you're mentally prepared for that because very often... It happens that there is these flares and symptoms, and it's a perfectly normal thing. And you just try and adjust. You stay with the patient, but you also educate the patient why this is happening, so that the patient is not losing heart, thinking, "I'm really back to square one." When actually your body is going through the motions uh, that it should be going through, because everything we do as holistic medicine practitioners is stimulating your body to heal itself. We're never coming in as the superheroes trying to wipe out this virulent pathogen and then we healed, killed it off. But it's we bringing your body to a place where it can patrol itself. And uh, that takes time, just like it takes time to grow a tree in nature. And during that process, there will be what I call the roller coaster, there will be ups and there will be downs. And during the downs, you need to give pep talks to the patients. And it's very important to us as practitioners that we understand that so that we don't throw uh, the, our, uh, our weapons down at the first uh, sign of difficulty and say, oh, well, you know, tell the patient what they've heard so often already. I don't know what to do anymore and just, you know, just, just uh, you know, this is just, don't know what kind of a disease this is. I don't know why it worked, and now all of a sudden it doesn't anymore. Maybe it's a particular, you know, maybe you need to do another test or so. Uh, no, you are, you, you, you have the perfect medicine where people survived in the middle of a yellow fever jungle and malaria uh, with these very potent herbs that people very often like Xu Changqing, Changshan, Guijianyu, Guijiu. A lot of these herbs are, have the demon name. Uh, you know, the, the Guijianyu I just mentioned is the, the arrow that kills the demon. Uh, Guijiu is the demon mortar, etc. Have that written into their name. And so there is a whole anti-Gu materia medica out there that we've forgotten over the years because we have sort of antiseptically... Uh, 
you know, uh, number one in modern China is destroying its western frontier, and a lot of these herbs are becoming decimated because a lot of the more potent herbs that grow in the in the wilderness and in the jungle, where you have these fevers, and then secondarily, just because of you know the uh, historical and ideological bias against uh, uh, demonic possession syndrome from a, um, a Marxist materialist and also scientific materialist perspective, there there has been a complete neglect of this extremely useful kinds of herbs. Mm. And there's so many good points there and there's there's so much to be said for the way that we educate the patient and prepare them as well in terms of their expectations of what to expect from the process, um, you know, the different stages of the treatment, the way that we'll be alternating different herbs that will try to wipe out these parasites but we can't do it by depleting them. And I've definitely had so many patients turn up already saying, you know, I've done these five or six naturopathic cleansers and so forth and I just really want to kill this thing and um, you know they feel like it's a setback or, or they feel impatience towards the idea of recognizing how much they need to be strengthened in order for the process to be successful um, you know and there and there are these difficulties for the practitioner and, and the patient to during this long process I think there's so much we could say about it and unfortunately we're running out of time for today, Heine, but I would love to invite you back if you're interested in doing a part two on this topic with us. Uh, absolutely. Great. Well, well, we'll line that up. I hope the listeners have got as much out of this as I know we have. Um, and maybe in part two we can discuss a little bit more about the stages of treatment and what to expect and, and what kinds of difficulties the practitioners and the patients will encounter and also how to create a really good um, herbal selection, a really wide variety of selection in your clinic. I'd be happy to talk about that, yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're very welcome and thank you so very much. And thank you to our listeners. We would like to hear your thoughts, comments and feedback on this episode. Uh, and you can do that on our Facebook page. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. Bye for now. Bye.